Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Nevluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back to the Restoring Darkness podcast. On today's show, we're honored to be joined by Rachel Tai. Rachel is a certified lighting, a certified in lighting specialist one, LS1. I know a little bit about that program. Uh, in the lighting industry through the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, one of the financial sh- supporters of this. Rachel has worked for environmental and conservation-driven organizations for over 14 years with a focus in minimizing the anthropogenic threats to wildlife and the natural world. She has worked as the lighting project manager for Sea Turtle Conservancy, the oldest sea turtle organization in the world, for over the past seven years. Rachel and her team work to mitigate problematic lights on sea turtle nesting habitat. She has experience designing exterior lighting plans using wildlife-friendly lights, working closely with coastal governments in Florida to improve their lighting regulations for sea turtle protection, and training numerous audiences, including code enforcement and lighting industry personnel, about wildlife-friendly lighting. Rachel is an advocate for decreasing light pollution through better management of artificial light with the goal of creating darker and healthier habitat for sea turtles and other wildlife. You can go to conserveturtles.org and or you can go to at conserve turtles, which I'm assuming is a Twitter handle, Rachel. Uh, it's Twitter, um, Instagram and Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, so at Conserve Turtles. Before we get into my conversation with Rachel, I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Lighting and Darkness Foundation. Um, The Lighting and Darkness Foundation is a newly formed 501c3. It was spun out of the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, and its purpose is to educate the lighting industry about darkness and darkness preservation and night restoration. And so... um, if you want to give to that organization, you can donate some money at restoringdarkness.com. Why not become a monthly donor? Um, and if you want to help out the good folks in Wasatch Valley who are in the midst of a lighting ordinance battle to keep the Wasatch Valley nice and pristine and dark, you can click Darkness Campaigns and you can direct you can donate directly to their campaign through the Lighting and Darkness Foundation. And if you're in a battle an ordinance battle of some kind, or you need support and help, the Lighting and Darkness Foundation will be there for you. So you can contact us through our website, and we will support you. One of the ways we can do that is by raising money, like we're doing for Wasatch Valley, or also presenting at different county meetings and, and different areas with different stakeholders to help you convince them to restore night, restore darkness, and preserve night. Rachel, thank you for joining the Restoring Darkness podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You know, the turtle is a real big symbol of this movement. I would say the turtle and the bat kind of compete as the symbol of the darkness um, restoration movement. Why, how did sea turtles come to be such a symbol of this? Is it just because they're cute? I mean, yes, I think that's a big part of it. People do love sea turtles, um, but also because they're affected by light at night and it can really... um, really cause a lot of damage to them in terms of nesting and whatnot. So is it the nesting or is it the fact that when they come out of their little shells, they go the wrong way towards the highway light instead of the moonlight? It is both. So um, sea turtles are affected by artificial light. Um, It can cause them to go adults to go other places to nest, adult Mm -hmm. females, or it can cause um, 
hatchlings to become disoriented, meaning go the wrong direction, not know which direction is the right direction. Um, and you said something about moonlight uh, or the moon. It's not that they're attracted to the moon because as we know, the moon's not always over the ocean. It's they're um, attracted to the brighter horizon. So typically on a perfect night, um, Back in the day before there was artificial light, they would, there was celestial light. So it was the celestial light that attracted sea turtles to the ocean and the darker dunes causing a silhouette for the landward sources of any light coming from that direction. So as we know now with um, more development on beaches, there's less dunes and there's a lot more artificial light, which is um, a lot of times, most of the time, much more pronounced than um, the celestial light coming from the ocean, reflecting off the ocean. So you've been able to mitigate problematic lights. Now, what is that? Is that municipalities? Is that individuals in their homes? Is it in? Is it commercial buildings, hotels? What type of problematic lights have you been able to mitigate? All of the above. Okay. Um, we actually have grant funding um, through the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, NIFWA, to retrofit beachfront lighting um, in Florida using wildlife-friendly lighting. So. Um, do you know what wildlife-friendly lighting is, I guess, before I go into what we do? <laughs> I was just writing down that as my next question, but please yeah, go ahead and tell us what wildlife-friendly lighting, sure. how, it, how it works. So in the United States and Florida um, specifically, we kind of go by the three rules of wildlife-friendly lighting. So the first, which kind of go hand in hand with dark sky, um, but it's a little bit more easy to follow. So the first would be to keep it low referring to the mounting height of the fixture. So mounting it as low as possible um, using, and then also using the appropriate amount of light for what's needed for that specific application. Um, so lower watts, lower lumens, and lower mounting heights. The next would be keep it shielded, meaning physically shielding that light source so it's not visible from the beach. And then the last would be to keep it long, referring to the wavelength of light and not the actual Kelvin temperature. Um, which I know a lot of people get confused with. So mm -hmm. wavelength being at 560 nanometers or longer. Um, and those are kind of the three basic rules that we go by. We like to add one in the front that that is basically sea turtles um, and other wildlife do better with no light. So before applying those rules to a property, we like to look at that property and see what lights are actually needed um, for a function in terms of safety and security, and then um, remove any lights that are just pure, purely decorative and not needed. So mm. that's that's the three rules. You know, I often wonder to myself whether, uh, you know, how you make the decision of what's needed and what isn't. How is that decision making done by, by you guys? Uh, for us, we look at what's decorative. So for example, up lights, um, are purely decorative usually. Sometimes they're used for pathway lighting, and then if that's the case, then we'll, we'll actually illuminate the pathway and get rid of the up lights. Mm. Another one would be decorative string lights here in Florida. Um, a lot mm. of resorts like putting <laughs> string lights on palm sure. trees, um, and uh, they have no function other than to be pretty. So removing those. Of course, if they're trying to serve a function, which is um, important to ask, so if they're trying to illuminate their pool or um, a walkway, we will remove what's there and replace it with something that is better at serving that purpose, that application, and then it's also wildlife friendly. Talk to me about, I want to ask you a little bit about this physical shielding because I have, um, I've had many different people on this show coming at this particular issue from a host of different angles, wildlife, human health, 
um, glare, um, you know, driving safety, these types of things. And in my own, I, I sell lights every day. And so I'm always looking at different kinds of light fixtures and I'm very aware of the lighting environment just because I'm a professional in lighting. So um, what I think is a major problem with LED lights, regardless as to wildlife, wildlife is, is there, but it's serving this same thing with the shielding, is that when you're looking at a light from a distance away, say of more than 20 feet, often you can see the light source. Not just the light shield or the reflector, but you can actually see the LED array from a horizontal distance away from the light fixture. And I think that's problematic for glare reasons, for human health perspectives, people with epilepsy, um, people that are sensitive to different color temperatures. All these things are documented. Um, is that what you're after as well with this shielding is preventing animals and people from being able to see the light source and just directing the light down where it needs to be? Yes. So within reason, of course, I mean, there's times that, you know, to meet certain safety codes, you can't shield that light source because you need a certain type of distribution to come out and, you know, shielding that light's going to prevent that. But, um, Yes, um, shielding the light source so it's not actually visible. Now, in Florida, it's challenging to do that because sometimes we have um, very large high rises that have ceiling mounted lights on them. And mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how big of a shield you put on it. If you're looking up from the beach, you're going to see it. So mm -hmm. that's when I say within reason um, and what's doable. So in those cases, we can't ask those people to take their lights off, but we can still put a shield so it's less bad, mm, <laughs> for lack of less bad. I, you know, I, I think that the, the landscape lighting and the, um, the general lighting industry have kind of been separate for a long time. So there's a lot of people like me that, that are lighting distributors and contractors that they do not sell landscape lighting and that they'll put up the little erect poles, they'll put up, you know, different kinds of lights in parking lots and things. But I think that we need to expand into the landscape lighting realm with this idea of wayfinding rather than lighting everything. Sometimes you need to, you need to walk a path to the beach, right? And it's dark, you can't see the path. And so this idea of keeping landscape lighting very low and reflected down across a path, I think is a very useful way of thinking about lighting outdoor surfaces. Do you guys do a lot of that? We do. Um, only I'm going to say um, landward of the dunes. Um, so again, our goal is to minimize the amount of light um, that we're using for a particular purpose. But yeah, I, I would say that we use landscape lighting on almost every project that we do that um, is a building that has, you know, pathways and whatnot on it. So it is important and it's a really effective way, honestly, to illuminate an area or pathway and minimize the light output that you're putting on it. How has the support been from politicians, local and statewide politicians, some people at the you know Florida State Senate or Congress and then your local municipalities? Do you find there's broad and wide support or is there some resistance to this? I think it depends on who, um, who you're talking to within the local government. And it also depends on which specific areas you're talking to. Um, to open up a really big can of worms with that question, um, I'm not familiar I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with how lighting ordinances are set up in Florida. Mm -hmm. So to try and keep oh. it as brief and succinct as possible, um, it's truly up to each local government to mm -hmm. um, adopt and 
come up with their own lighting ordinance. The state has put out a model lighting ordinance which they can follow and they're meant to be guidelines, but it's up to each local government to adopt those rules, change them, do what, do what they will with them. So every place in Florida is different. Um, and we actually recently just collaborated with the National Wildlife Federation to do a um, project where we scored all the ordinances in the state of Florida, where we looked at their language and compared it back to the model. And then we looked at their quality of implementation. So how they ed how those places educate people, how they actually enforce their ordinances and those sorts of things. So depending on where you go in Florida is going to depend on how how supportive those local governments are. So I, I can't say a blanket statement statement and say it's great, everyone's supportive, but for the people who are, they're wonderful. And then for a lot of people who aren't, they're just uneducated and a lot of them are willing to learn. And then there's people who just don't care about sea turtles, which I'm sure is um, the theme with other wildlife as well. Mm. There's a, we do a darkness news update every week. And, and this week I remember hearing that even though these different states had made a a path for the birds that was dark, the birds stayed on their traditional flying route and continued to hit the buildings. You know what I'm saying? And so even though they did this other darkness preserve here, the birds didn't take a detour. They wanted to fly the way they've always flown for thousands of years, maybe hundreds of thousands of years on those paths. And so, you know, um, you know, education is important. Enforcement is important as well. Have you worked with enforcement at all? Have you said, you know, hey, can you help us out here? This particular landowner or whatever is not amenable to uh, Mr. Nice Guy. And so maybe we need to bring in the bylaw officers. Have you had luck with that? We have. So we actually um, host a code enforcement workshop for different areas of the state. And um, that code enforcement workshop is really just to help educate code enforcement about sea turtles, how they're affected by light actual laws that are in place. So some code enforcement officers don't even know about their own lighting ordinances. Mm -hmm. um, Big problem, and then, actually. Yes, it's a huge problem. And then those solutions, those rules and how to mitigate the light. We talk about um, some of those rules and then places they can go um, to get more information. And those have been a really big success. They've been ongoing since I think 2015 and um, our audiences just get, get bigger and bigger. Thank God. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's wonderful. And we work really closely with code enforcement. Um, and when we go into new areas to do retrofits, they're some of the first people that we call to ask them where their problematic properties are so we can focus on those. <laughs> so I would say that code enforcement is uh, truly, uh, truly has a stake in the game. They're getting better. They're getting, you know, they're becoming educated, but they can only enforce what their ordinance says. So that's where you kind of it, yeah, they're not advocates. Can. They're bylaw enforcement officers. Right, right. They can't so change whether the they laws want or to make or the not, Yeah, it makes no difference. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Do they hand out tickets or how do they, when they, do they give a warning and say, hey, you know what, you have 60 days to remediate this problem with your lighting or how does that whole thing work? Like ordinances, it's different everywhere. There isn't uh, a, a standard. So some places may be a little bit more aggressive with the fines. Some people may be more understanding, especially if people are working on the project to do their updates. I think code enforcement's a bit more understanding. And then sometimes all they do is send a letter and that's all they can do. So it just depends on where you go in the state. And so you've engaged in educating them technically is what I'm hearing. And so do you say this is a light meter? This is how you measure or this is a shielded fixture. This isn't like, how is that education going with the code enforcers? 
Um, so it's a three-part three part, uh, workshop that we give to them. That first mm -hmm. portion basically talks about how sea turtles are affected by light, um, how our artificial light impacts them. The second part goes through all the laws surrounding sea turtles and lights in the United States from federal down to local mm -hmm. level. Um, then we actually go through and we um, tell them what makes a good lighting ordinance and why, how to do a light um, a lighting survey at night, what to look for, what things to um, take down. And then part three of that um, looks at ways to manage artificial light. So we talk about the myths um, surrounding light. We talk about those three rules and we give examples of here's, you know, a light that isn't following this rule and here's a light that is. Mm -hmm. um, Part three, uh, or not part three, that, that third rule, um, keep it long, we really dive into because um, I feel like people have a really hard time grasping That's a tough what one. wavelength is. It yeah. is. So um, we uh, show a lot of um, graphs okay. from- A lot of manufacturers center. don't post that information. Right. But we do have a program in Florida that the state puts on where they certify fixtures and bulbs to be wildlife friendly. And so okay. to be certified, you do have to provide them that information. Um, but not every fixture and bulb that we use is obviously going to be certified, but doesn't mean that it doesn't meet the right criteria. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is something that we need to know. Uh, but yeah, so in that third part, like I said, we go through all that. And uh, we also talk about some resources where they can go to find lights. We talk about kind of how the lighting industry is set up because you can't just walk into a chain store to purchase wildlife friendly mm -hmm. lighting. Um, a lot of it's made to order. So we talk about lighting distributors and we talk about manufacturers and lighting agencies and how the whole industry is set up because otherwise people wouldn't be able to find lights. Um, and then we just provide them with um, outreach resources. Hmm. What are the myths? More Some lighting equals more safety? <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the big ones is um, it's really what, what people think it doesn't do. So wildlife friendly lighting isn't safe. My property won't be secure if I change my lights over. Um, my property is going to be unattractive. Um, I won't be able to meet, this kind of goes hand in hand with safety. I won't be able to meet um, proper building codes. Um, it's going to be too expensive. Um, those are some of the main ones. Yeah. We talk about um, in our discussions with our board and often on this show, I'll talk about how it seems that there is a shift in the zeitgeist right now where people, general people are starting to become aware of this and light pollution is gone, is kind of going into this conspicuous into grotesque mode where you have and the, like people would think their, their outdoor, you know, soffit lights are amazing to now that it's kind of like, why does that guy leave his lights on all night? To now where it's it's kind of gross actually to to see light pollution when you when you've you know you've come to understand what it is and how damaging it is and how many birds die and all this the turtles and everything else it becomes grotesque and I think we want to accelerate that process so that the the you know the citizens of 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 America Canada and all these different places can start to say not I don't want to use the word shame but kind of like you know look down like I want lighting distributors to one of the to be in a position where if you don't recommend wildlife friendly or light fixtures that will restore night and, and, and darkness if you don't specify this you're kind of looked down on in the group like why aren't you doing this man every all the cool people are doing this now buddy you know I I, I hope we can get there um, and it's gonna get there when the customers start asking us for it more 
You know what I'm saying? When there's sales there, I hate to be yeah. crude like that. Um, have you seen that accelerate? Have you seen people in the distributors in Florida setting dark sky displays up in their showrooms and stuff like that? Some, yes. Mm. Um, I was fortunate enough that when I started this job, I actually worked remotely before remote was a thing. And um, I was set up in an office with a lighting distributor. And so me coming from the you know background of biology and conservation, I knew nothing about lights when I started this job. So I really am thankful that they put me up because I learned yeah. so much from being there with them. And through that also met some really amazing contacts between people and distribution, but as well as, you know, lighting agencies and whatnot. So um, through those contacts and through that experience, we've been able to make more contacts and spread the word. Um, and I, I feel like when I, when I first started this position, um, there's a lot of distrust between conservationists and lighting professionals, lighting industry professionals. Mm. And uh, it was really important to kind of bridge that gap because we need to work together to make this, to make it work. Um, and so in doing that, at least in Florida, I feel like more and more of the distributors that we work with and more and more of um, the lighting agencies are pushing for that. Even some of the utility companies have been pushing for that. I went to a, um, a conference for, um, the different municipalities here in Florida. And there was a utility company that was there and, uh, and as one of the exhibitors and they had up a um, wildlife friendly fixture that they mm. offer. And to me that, that speaks volumes because the fact that someone's even there educating about that, that's not us and not a sea trail group is I think fantastic. And we found really great advocates within the um, lighting industry. So I definitely feel like it's possible but people who aren't within that realm or aren't working closely with, um, you know, properties in Florida and aren't seeing that as as much, um, they are a little bit harder to get through to. And we we do hear that it's about supply and demand. So until people start asking for it, um, they're not going to provide it. Yeah, Dark Sky um, International, or I don't know if they're if it's just Dark Sky or Dark Sky, I know they changed their name from IDA to Dark Sky, has done a really good job in reaching out to the lighting industry. They've um, they created the five principles of responsible outdoor lighting with the IES, and then they've been working really hard to make inroads and and to connect. Because in the past, you know the the um, this movement was at odds with the lighting industry. The lighting industry wasn't embracing it. And what I've been trying to say as a lighting professional and and on this show is that this represents a huge opportunity for us financially to make a lot of money. Like, I mean, I, I love it, everything else, but but even if the lighting industry embraces this, it's the single biggest opportunity we have in front of us is, is to redo all the exterior lighting. Um, why not? Like, why not embrace this issue, right? It, there's the people, the governments are going to start to make codes about this. They're going to start to enforce these ordinances and all this sort of stuff. And the lighting industry should lead it. We should be on the front lines. Why not? So. Yeah, I wish more people saw it that way. I really do, because I agree. I agree. It's things are changing, and don't you want to be on the forefront of that change? Well, not only that though, but it doesn't. We're not talking about more light. We're not talking about no light. We're talking mm -hmm. about redoing existing lighting systems, which we've been doing for the last thirty years. You know, replacing yeah, lighting. Anyway. Yes, and you know what? Well, let's just put. I mean, I hate to say it, but we have to push reset on the exterior lighting. We've created so much light pollution with LEDs. Let's. 
we have to go back and say, you know what, we made a mistake. It wasn't all about energy efficiency. There's other issues that we need to address with exterior lighting. And whether that's sea turtles or dung beetles or whatever, we want to make sure that our lighting is, is as safe and healthy for all living things. Um, I feel like we had a nice technical conversation here, Rachel. It was, it was really fun. <laughs> Usually we're in the spiritual world and you know, all this stuff on the show, um, you know, children's books and, and everything else. But, um, uh, what is, you know, what is your goal long-term for your career? Do you plan to, to spend a career in darkness restoration and night preservation? Um, and if so, what do you want to accomplish? Wow. I haven't been asked that question in a long time. Um, I like what I'm doing now. And I'm happy with what I'm doing now. Um, I never thought for once, you know, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, if I thought I was going to be doing something with lights, I would have laughed at you. But um, I've come to really enjoy it. Um, I take a lot of pride in the project that I'm managing. And um, I think I want to continue doing this. I think it's really important to to mitigate lights and light pollution. So this, I think. Um, but my long-term goal is just that I think to get kind of what we talked about to get more people aware of light pollution being an issue and want to do something about it, not just along the coast of Florida, but everywhere, um, which I know is what the show is all about. Um, and to really mitigate, mitigate um, lights for sea turtles as well. So I think that would be my long-term goal is to keep doing what I'm doing and just get more people aware and um, making an actual change. Um, a, a, a large impact, I should say, making a nice big impact where you can see that change everywhere. Yeah, I think and I think you're going to see it swell. I, there's momentum behind this right now. Um, how has the, I don't know how to describe it, everything's so political now, um, but the, the, you know, when it shouldn't be in the environment, like having a clean environment, um, whether, and I think that starts at the local level, right? Um, with water and air and, and land, right? And wildlife, um, how, have you felt that the larger environmental movements that we have, plastics in the ocean, um, uh, climate change, carbon dioxide, all this kind of stuff, have they embraced this as a true environmental issue yet? Or are they, is it still a metaphor to them, light pollution? How's your, how's your interactions with them been? I don't think a lot of people here in Florida who aren't um, involved with coastal lighting and sea turtles um, really think of light pollution as being a type of pollutant at all. And that's something that we really push in our, in our outreach that we do that light pollution is pollution. Um, I feel like some things have been embraced, um, but it also could just be because this is what I do all the time. Mm. I see it every day and I'm thinking about it every day, but on a large scale, um, at least in this state and really probably the whole country, I, I feel like there is still not a lot of attention on this issue when there should be yeah i feel like it you know the the epa for example in america um i don't know if they have legislation on on light pollution or not but they're certainly not aggressive in the realm they're not acting very fast you know you hear in canada we have the ministry of the environment and climate change that's the name of the what canadians epa would be and you know there isn't a lot of talk about light pollution and i think it still resonates as a metaphor for a lot of people that 
oh, we only say light pollution because we want you to understand that it's too much light, but it's not actually pollution. It's just like a comparison or something like that. And I think that's something that the uh, movement needs to overcome and have it included. And in fact, it's a solvable environmental problem and it will contribute to any of the other problems in terms of energy efficiency and using less energy. And so, you know, it's, um, it's, it should be embraced. Rachel Ty, do you have any final thoughts for our Restoring Darkness listeners? Oh, man, that's a big one. Um, I would say if there's anybody out there who doesn't already know that light pollution is a problem, <laughs> maybe take a look at it and that just because you're not on the coast, just because you don't have sea turtles or even, you know, heavy populations of bats like we talked about mm. or dung beetles as you said earlier um there's something including you that's affected by light so you mm. should still look at your lights and um make a change for better for your health or for the health of the environment can people donate to conserveturtles.org they sure can there's um a lot of different things um you can you can become a member you can just um donate to donate you can um, adopt a sea turtle as well um we do this is actually a great time to do that <laughs> we uh satellite tag um sea turtles every year um in different places in the caribbean and in the state of florida and they um enter into a race called tour de turtles um and basically it's a migration um race and at the end of it um you know whoever traveled the furthest wins um but you're able to uh, get online and track turtles and see where they're going um all have names and um, you can adopt one of those turtles as well symbolically <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a great program and so like it's wonderful yeah like, like rachel said there's lots of ways to get involved and you can get involved with conserveturtles.org and you or you can get involved with the letting and darkness foundation we're looking for volunteers we're also looking for an executive director right now i'm the interim executive director but i'm pretty busy so we need somebody that's available all day and can can help us out um and you know what? Sometimes we help out just by giving cash, and that works amazing too. You don't, not everybody has time to give, but they're passionate about an idea, and whether it's an environmental movement, a political party, candidate, or whatever, you give money. That's another way to do because you're busy, you got kids, whatever it is you're doing with your life. You can go to conserveturtles.org, and I'm sure you can find your way to the donation page there, or you can go to restoringdarkness.com as well, and you can donate to the Lighting and Darkness Foundation. Or you can even donate directly to the good folks in Wasatch Valley. That's right. Wasatch Back Valley. Wasatch Back. Yeah, behind the mountains of Salt Lake. Beautiful, pristine night environment there, and they want to preserve it. And they're in a bit of a battle with their local politicians, so you can donate directly to their campaign, all at restoringdarkness.com. And we thank Rachel Ty for joining us today. Thank you very much, Rachel. And, of course, to all the listeners out there, thank you for joining us. Bye for now. Look no further for dark sky-friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.